We are really privileged now to, to have Dr. Gentilette with us. I know he's a, a, just a, a wonderful teacher and a favorite of, 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 of many of you, and we're uh, embarking tonight. It's, it's, it's the, the bulletin said, the leaflet said, Mark, it's a three-part series. Is that right? I think so. Yeah, I was thinking it was four-part. The three-part will work, so yeah. that would be good. Uh, Mark, by the way, has just gotten back from, uh, from being on sabbatical when his, his primary focus was writing a commentary <coughs> on Micah. So we look forward to that being published within the next year, you think, Mark? Perhaps. But anyway, we look forward to getting that commentary in, in, our, in our bookstore and also perhaps you coming in uh, and doing a series on Micah also sometime in the real too. <coughs> so, so it's really, really great to have him. So I, having said all that, uh, I will just want well, to just turn it over to you, Mark, and let you get going. So we, I take advantage of the class. Well, let, let's begin with the word of prayer. It's always a privilege to be with you here at the Cathedral Church. It was a pleasure to worship with you this morning as well, um, and we've missed you all. So it's good to it's good to be back. So let, let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we're grateful that you have given us this opportunity together in these next few weeks to to step back and to absorb. Um, and to try to absorb by your spirit the, the profoundness of your name. You've not left us in the dark regarding your identity. You have spoken to us, and you've spoken to us clearly in your Son. And I pray that you'll help us to see who you are and to follow in the light of that. And Lord, I pray for the teacher this morning that you will bless him, and I pray for those who are hearing that you'll open their hearts and minds to hear. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, what I thought we'd do for these next three weeks, um, and, and uh, the, the commentary on Micah will not be out in the next year. Um, but we, you know, the work hard, play hard mentality that we try to take the sabbatical. I'll just say there was a lot of playing hard that, that happened as well. Um, but I, during my time uh, on, on sabbatical, you know, I did a lot of work in the minor prophets, and, and what we, we may do this at another time, but. Well, what I began to discover, and it's become of a, a great interest to me, actually, is that there is a, there's a theme throughout the Minor Prophets of this reference back to Exodus 34, 6, and 7, you know, where, where, God, where Yahweh reveals him, himself to Moses behind the clefts of the rock, which is quite beautiful, actually, after the, the hymn we sang this morning before the sermon. Um, so here you have uh, Moses hid behind the cleft of a rock, and God says, you can't see my glory, but I'll let you see my, my face, and I'll let you see my back. I, I want to spend some time with that text, but, but th- today um, is going to be a run-up to that, if that's okay. And then the next two weeks, we'll spend some time in Exodus 32 through 34, which is that golden calf incident, I mean, th- which is, I think, one of the best stories in the Bible. It's a lot of fun. Um, but before that, I thought we would, we would um, step back and begin at the beginning of the book of Exodus, wrestling with the question um, about the identity of God, about who... Um, who God is. That's the most basic and profound question we have, isn't it? Um, the, the, the question about who are you, God? Um, I, I listened recently to a lecture by Graham Tomlin, who I think some of you may know. Graham Tomlin taught for years. In fact, I was, I was on, on, on staff with Graham for a year at Wickle Paul in, in Oxford. And I think now he runs at a training institute in, in London, the Holy Trinity Brompton. But I heard Graham give a lecture on Luther and Luther's understanding of justification. It was very good. I think you can find it online for free if you want to do a Google search on that. And at the conclusion of his lecture, he commented on that oft-repeated story of Luther 
where Luther was reflecting on his time as a monk. And that was one of the fun things we actually were able to do um, in our time at the, in, uh, in Germany, was to go and, and do a, a kind of, we walked for a Luther walk thing. Um, and we went to, this, to, the, to the Augustinian monastery in Erfurt, where, where a Luther um, had, you know, had this encounter with the lightning, and, and he said, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be a monk, help me, St. Anne. And so he goes to the Augustinian monastery, becomes a monk. And remember, Luther said, if there ever was a monk, who could have attained heaven by his monkishness, I was that monk. Um, but he also, reflecting on that time, uh, talked about his relationship to God. You may remember this phrase. He said, I didn't love God then. I hated him. You remember that? That's actually quite a quite stunning thing for someone to say. It's quite an honest thing, isn't it? Because Luther, in the particular view of God that he had that was inherited from a medieval form of Christianity, um, Luther was overwhelmed with terror at this God, this juridical God who was waiting uh, to pounce on him at any moment. I mean, that was his view of God. I didn't love God, Luther said. I, I actually hated God. And Tomlin reflected on that, and I thought he turned the phrase rather beautifully when he said, in, in, large sense, in a large sense, Luther's own personal spiritual transformation that occurred and the genesis of the Reformation itself happened because Luther was on a passionate pursuit to find a God that he could love. Isn't that interesting? To find a God that he could love. Because the God that he knew as a monk was the God that terrified him. And where did he find this God that, that he could love? He found the God that he could love by um, reading carefully again the Bible. Well, I think that's, that's quite fascinating. Um, this is the great challenge that I think you and I have when we wrestle with who God is. Um, we... We just don't get to make the God that we want to make in our own image. As, as a matter of fact, I, I would make an argument that that is the first great heresy of the early church with Marcion, was the attempt to fashion a God after Marcion's own making. Now, you may, may remember this bad guy, Marcion, uh, first really bad guy. I mean, if we can put it in, you know, in that term, we'll make t-shirts for that, you know, uh, first bad guy. Um, and what, what was Marcion's claim? Marcion's claim was, uh, number one, the Old Testament God can't have really anything to do with Jesus. And this is part of Marcion's philosophical disposition. The spiritual world, that's inherently good. That's a good world. But the material world, the physical world, that's bad, right? And when you read the Old Testament, for, whether, whether you like it or not, and I, and I can understand why, why some of you might not, um, but whether you like it or not, the Old Testament is a very physical, earthy book. I mean, my, my boys are already tapped into this. I mean, you're talking about, you know, tent pegs going through temples. Remember that story? Um, Uzzah touching the ark, he falls down. I mean, this is a very earthy physical book. And Marcion's philosophical disposition didn't allow his understanding of God, the first cause, the, 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 the only God, um, to be uh, that, that predisposed to being enwrapped in, in, in the physical world. So the Old Testament God might have been a demiurge, some second-tier God, but he wasn't the real God. So what we remember, I think, Marcion for most is his kind of Jeffersonian approach to the Bible. You know, cut and paste. You know, let's get that part out. I don't really like that. A little white out here. Um, so what, what ended up happening? Well, all the Old Testament was gone, and a good chunk of the New Testament was gone, and really what it was left with was, was Paul. And, and honestly, that just shows that Marcion wasn't, wasn't as good a scholar as he probably should have been. Because if he'd have done his work really hard, he would have been left with nothing. Right. Because, I mean, Paul, 
Luke. I mean, the whole of the New Testament is just saturated with Old Testament themes and, and thoughts. So, we remember Marcion for his excising of the Old Testament, but what I've come to realize, I think, is that that is the symptom of something that's much deeper and profound for Marcion. The deeper issue, the more profound issue, was that Marcion could not allow the God that was given to him in the canon of the Old and the New Testament to be his God. It had to be a God fashioned after his own making, a God fashioned after his own philosophical preferences. I think we wrestle with this in the church. I think you wrestle with this. I know that I I do as well. You know, we want a God who's manageable. We want a God who maybe we can put in our our own back pocket. Um, And we don't get that kind of God. What we get in the Old Testament and the New Testament is a God, and this is the title of our series, a God who is merciful and severe. Or to flip those, a God who's severe and he's he's merciful. Um, I I, I don't normally do this, and and I may regret this. Um, But I'm reading a book. I'm I'm a little bit ways through it. And I want to commend it to you. I actually think it is, especially in light of the sermon that we heard this morning, it's by Todd Billings, um, and it's entitled Union with Christ, Reframing Theology and Ministry for the Church. Um, Billings is a a Reformed thinker, um, but he's basically arguing about the centrality of union with Christ and our understanding of salvation. He's got a very healthy understanding of justification and sanctification and how these two come together. It's an outstanding book. I I, I commend it to you. But what I've found quite interesting in sort of sitting yesterday and, and spending some time with this book is he engages, and some of you may have heard about this, but he engages the work of a man named Christian Smith who has written two books. Um, one of them, if I, can, if I can, I'll give you the titles. This is a little academic and my apologies to you. Um, find it here. One of them, the first one, they're both Oxford University Press books. The first one by Smith is called Soul Searching. And then the second one by Smith is called A Souls in Transition. Um, and what, he, what, Smith has, what Smith did as a sociologist is he did the most extensive survey and sociological engagement with American adolescents who claim to be Christians, right? So from mainline denominations to free church denominations, I mean, across the whole spectrum, he engaged America's youth to see who their God was, right? And uh, this is actually, I mean, I, this might not come as a surprise to you at all, but what his findings showed him was that America's youth People who could probably articulate the gospel in some form or another. But America's youth identified God this way, and he came up with this, this little acronym called MTD. A moralistically therapeutic deistic God. MTD. A moralistically therapeutically deistic God. So let's unpack that. I mean, this is America's youth. What, what do they think about God? He's moral. That is, he helps me be a better person in the way in which I interact with other people. That's, that's who God is. Number two, he's therapeutic. And that I know that there's something wrong with me, and he helps me to kind of come to see who I truly am. And number three, he's deistic. And that he's really removed from everyday affairs in life. He might show up here and there, but he's kind of set the, set the whole watch going. And now he stepped back, and he lets the second hand do its thing. 
he's distantly removed, observing somewhere from some other place. That's who, that's who got it. What he found out in his second book, when he moved from adolescents into 18-year-olds to 23-year-olds, is that they came to a real crisis of faith, that the gods that they thought they knew, this moralistically therapeutic deistic god, um, didn't really help them in their crisis point in 18 to, as being an 18 to 23-year-old. But they still knew that they had a god to make in their own image. And let's put that in shorthand from a biblical terminology. It's still in the realm of idolatry. Right? We're going to fashion our own god. I mean, the Tower of Babel, we do this in our own ways. We're trying to build our own ways up to God. And, and, and as we, you know from that story, God, God doesn't like that. This, this is at the heart of our faith. It is at the heart of our identity. It is one of the reasons that I've become increasingly appreciative of your liturgical tradition. And that is week in and week out, you get challenged in your liturgy. I heard it again this morning. You get challenged in your liturgy with whatever notion you have about God, right, that you bring to the table. You're challenged week in and week out to shape your understanding of God in light of the biblical canon, Old Testament and New Testament. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then you go on through that with this Trinitarian confession about who God is. It's actually a great gift of grace to you that week in and week out you get to be reminded you don't get to make God in your image. And matter of fact, you don't really want to do that. It's not, it's not, it's not going to help you in the long run. Um, all right, I'm... I'm this is all warm up. So, uh, um, I, I think some of you may feel that kind of struggle that Luther had, right? I, I know my wife and I were even reflecting over this weekend about our own ecclesial past and wrestling with how do we how do we find this God who who we can love, right? who who we can who we can follow, and 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 not be overwhelmed with terror, right? Even though terror is part of it, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, I, I've been reading a book, uh, I think I mentioned this to, to the dean uh, recently, but I'm, I'm halfway through a novel um, by John Updike, and uh, I wanted to read you something from it because I, I, it's actually quite moving. Um, now, be careful. I mean, I, I don't, you know, have any of you read Updike? He can be really salacious, so, you know, spoiler alert. Um, not, not in this one yet, at least not yet. Uh, but he, he, his first chapter is a, is a vignette, kind of a, a, um, an expose of a, of a minister, Presbyterian minister named Clarence Wilmot, who loses his faith. And, he, and, and I wanted to read you the scene. Uh, yeah, oh, yes, this is in the beauty of the lilies. Yeah, in the beauty of the lilies. I wanted to read you the scene where Wilmot um, tells his wife why he's lost his faith. This, this isn't happy, by the way. So he says to her, my faith, my dear, seems to have fled. I not only no longer believe with an ideal fervor, I consciously disbelieve. My very voice rebelled today against my attempting to put some sort of good face on a doctrine that I intellectually detest. Ingersoll, who wrote a book, by the way, on Moses and why the God of Moses is a problem. Ingersoll, Hume, Darwin, Renan, Nietzsche. It all rings true when you've read enough to have it sink in. They have not just reason on their side, but simple humanity and decency as well. Jehovah and his pet Israelites, that bloody tit-for-tat of the atonement, the whole business of condemning poor, fallible men and women to eternal hell, 
for a few mistakes in their little lifetimes. The notion in any case that our spirits can survive without eyes or brains or nerves. Stell, this is his wife, it's been a fearful struggle. I twisted my mind in loops to hold on to some sense in which these things are true enough to preach. But I've got to let go or go crazy. I love you for feeling otherwise and would never argue a man or child out of whatever they believe. But to me, it's all become relics. Things left over from our childish nightmares. When there's daylight now all around us, this is the 20th century. I can't help selling myself and others the opposite of what jumps out at me from every newspaper and physical fact I see. The universe is 100% matter with the energy that comes in waves out of matter. And poor old humankind is on its own and always has been. Not what you want to hear from your pastor. Um, But I think something that probably rings true for for many of us. You know, the God who presents himself in the Bible, I mean, there are some dark alleys. There's some difficulties in, in the Bible. You've read it, right? And why I wanted to spend time in Exodus is because really the the revelation of God in Exodus to Moses and the Israelites is at the core of his identity throughout the whole of the Bible. And I think it might help, and again, I don't want to in any way attenuate or make light of those dark alleys in the Bible. And those of you who are astute enough, you know where they are. You, You know where those dark alleys are. You know where the difficulties lie. So I don't want to attenuate or make light of any of that, but I do think it's very important, and it's becoming this way for me increasingly, that we allow our Christian theology and the way in which we think about theology to be ordered in some sort of way. In other words, I don't don't like a a, a shotgun blast when it comes to theology that just splatters on the page. I need to think about things in some sort of ordered way that moves from primary matters that then helps me make sense of those more difficult matters. And I think the identity of God in Jesus Christ as a God of mercy and grace is where we have to start. And then we begin to wrestle with some of these other more complex and profound problems, which are real. I don't want to downplay those. And that's why when we come to Exodus, chapter 3, that's where I want to spend some time with you. I don't know if... Oh, yeah. Exodus 3. I want us to look at this two, two passages this morning. Um, and then maybe we'll leave some time for questions. I'm already scared of the questions because we've raised some difficult stuff. Um, so Exodus 3 and Exodus chapter 6. And you know this story. It's one of my, one of my, my son's favorite ones. The story of the burning tree. I'd read that one more time. So you know what? Moses was keeping the flock with his father-in-law Jethro. He led his flock beyond the wilderness. He came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire on a bush. And he looked. And you know what? The bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. So Moses said, I need to turn aside and see this why this bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Why is it holy ground? It's holy ground... Because the God of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is about to reveal himself. He's about to pull back the veil and let Moses have insight and vision into who he actually is. And this is a holy, sacred, sanctified place. He said further, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, and the God of Isaac. 
And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Um, it's, here in verse 6, we see, first of all, that the divine identity is revealed. I'm the God of your father. Um, the, the purpose of this encounter with the burning bush is not the burning bush. I mean, that, as cool as that is. The purpose of the burning bush encounter was for Moses to have a revelation of the divine identity. This is very important, I think. It's important because what it's telling us here and throughout all of the Bible is that we do not have the first clue who God really is unless God speaks to us and identifies himself and says, this is who I am. This is what Calvin said so beautifully, I think. God accommodates himself to us in human language. Is our understanding of God um, complete and total? Of course not. He's infinite. He's beyond what we can ever know. This is where the Greek Orthodox theologians, they're on to something when they talk about the apophatic side to God's being. That is, there's something beyond our knowing that we could never know. And through eternity, we'll still get to know who God is. Right? I mean, that he is beyond us. But at the same time, when God speaks to us, when he accommodates himself to us, when he reveals himself to us, he does so truly and really. Even if it is what Calvin said, like a baby, like a parent prattling and goo goo gaing to a baby in the carriage, right? You know, that's, that's how we talk to our kids. You, you know, I think about this with my, with my uh, two-year-old. This is how we talk to him. Would you like some more of this? He's calling people dummy now, which is not good. Um, I don't know how this has happened. It's a real crisis in our family. Everyone is dummy. I won't say the other words he's learned. His, his older brothers are good mentors to him in this regard. Um, but, you know, I have to, we have to talk to a two-year-old in a certain way. I can't talk to him the way in which I talk to my wife. Right? But when I'm talking to, to my son, Frank, and when I'm communicating to him, when I'm telling him what I want from him and who I am, I mean, what I'm telling him is true. I mean, it corresponds to reality. And here we have a moment within in this burning bush encounter where God is pulling back the veil and he's saying, Moses, I'm going to let you know who I am. And you would not have known otherwise. Um, now, I know some of you aren't going to like this. And, and, and again, it's just me. That's why sometimes these teaching moments should probably be a kind of a debate so that you can hear another perspective. But for me, you know, I don't get giddy about apologetics. And I, I, and I think that and those who do do that, I'm so thankful that they're in the kingdom and that not everyone thinks like I do. All right. But my, you know, so what do you have? So, someone who's an agnostic, who hears a great apologetic argument for the belief in the existence of a God. Right? And then they hear the end of that debate and they're like, you know, I think that, that person won. I'm convinced. There's a God. Do you, you know what Calvin and, and, and Cranmer and I think the great reformers, the magisterial reformers would have said? Well, good for that person. They're, they're, they're one step closer to hell now. Right? <laughs> it's, it's to be able to identify God as God, that, that's uh, that there's a God out there, that's, I mean, I guess that's better than being an agnostic or an atheist, but, it, but it's not salvific. It, 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 it's not redemptive in any sense. Um, but what's redemptive is when God reveals himself and says, not only do, does God, the, that being, exist, but this is who he is. My name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when you look to Jesus Christ, that's who you're going to see who I really am. And that's where salvation and redemption is, right? I mean, it's when God reveals, when he, when he reveals who he is, that's, that's what classically theology is called special revelation. When he un- unveils himself and says, this is who I am, and that's what's going on here, this is a moment of revelation. And do you notice what Moses' response is? And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid, he was afraid to look at God. Now, the title of our series is The Severity and the Mercy of God. 
When you have an encounter with God, when you see God exalted on His throne, ask Isaiah in chapter 6. When you have these kind of encounters with God, it is an overwhelming, fearful experience. What classical theology called the mysterium tremendum. The fearful, the trembling mystery of God. Um, you know, I, 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 I probably have told you all this before, and, and if I've used this illustration before, forgive me. Um, but I was a youth director for several years, and, and we had um, a, a praise band with our youth group. Um, that was, I think, part of, um, part of my purgation to let me for sure go to heaven. Um, I'm joking. But we had a praise band. I didn't interfere. I let them do what they wanted to do. And, um, but they had this one song that they would sing. Some, some of you may know this, uh, if, if you know this praise music. And the chorus went something like this. I, I want to touch you. I want to see you. I want to know you. I want to see your face. Something like that, right? Have you heard this one before? I, I rib my wife, you know, being a little churlish, but I'd rib, rib my wife and I'd say, you know, they can talk for themselves. Right? I'll have none of the touching and none of the seeing. Right? I mean, when you, when you, when you see this, when this happens in the Bible... I mean, Moses hid his face. He was afraid. Uzzah falls down dead. He's gone, right? Job, Job has this incredibly extended kind of, I mean, I mean, his, his ability to, to, to craft an argument in Job about his, his own self-righteousness and why he needs to have an encounter with God. He wants his day in court. He wants to see God and be able to argue his case. I mean, it's all this juridical language. He gets his day in court with God. God shows up. And you, you notice how much Job says when that happens? Not a word. But, doesn't say a word. And Isaiah, what does Isaiah say when he sees God, Yahweh lifted up? He, he, uh, he says, woe is me, I'm a dead man because my eyes, my eyes have seen the king. And just so you don't think that's Old testament stuff, what happened to John on the Isle of Patmos when he saw Jesus revealed in his glory? Fell at his feet like I was a, like I was a dead person. I mean, the revelation of the identity of God to us does entail with it a knee-knocking fear. He is severe. He is other. He is nothing like you and I are. Nothing like us. And the, and the proper response in that kind of moment of unveiling is an overwhelming sense of fear. I wrestle with how to talk to my children this way, you know. But you know the problems. Say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I, and I tell my, you know, when we talk about this, you know, that fear is respect, it's all that kind of thing. And that's right. But it's also, I mean, we're chewing on meat in here, right? We're not talking to kids. I mean, it's also knee-knocking fear. The reality that, that God, that God is so other and so huge that He speaks and worlds come into existence. That, 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 that is an awesome and overwhelming thought. So He is severe. He's, he's not to be trifled with. He's, he's not our buddy. He's not a genie on the mantle that we rub, you know, to get us out of tight fixes. He is the king. He, he is unlike us. He is holy. But then look how it goes on. The Lord said, I've observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. You see where this moves? It's beautiful how this narrative goes. From the revelation of, the, of, of God's identity, I'm, I'm the God of your fathers, to the, to the proper response of, of hiding one's face in fear, to then God's unveiling of why, what, what precipitated my, my revealing of my name to you, Moses? What's precipitating the revealing of my identity, my identity to you? The answer is it's God's grace. I've heard the cry of my people. 
I've heard, I've seen them in their suffering, and I'm about to do something right now, and when I do that, Moses, I'm going to do it through you. Moses protests. I won't go through all the details of this, but Moses protests. As you would expect, often the prophets in the Old Testament do, they protest. But then he says, you're going to do it, which is, by the way, what happens in all the Bible. God says, I want you to do something. The prophets or Moses, they put, I don't really want to do that. And then God says, well, you're going to do it. And then it's, it's beautiful, actually, how the Bible does, does this. This happens in Jeremiah all the time, right? I don't want to do this. And then the next verse, and Jeremiah went and said, right? <laughs> Which makes, by the way, the book of Jonah so fascinating. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. He said, arise and go to Tarshish, I mean, go to Nineveh because of the evil that's come up before me. Next verse, and, arose, and Jonah arose and fled to Tarshish. I mean, that, that's a complete anomaly in all of the prophetic literature. I mean, Joseph, jo, Jonah goes the other way. Anyway, Moses, he's going to do what he's told to do. Verse 13, but Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you and they're going to ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to them, to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you should say to the Israelites, I am sent me to you. And God said also to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. The God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. You see the context of the revelation of the divine name here? The context is, and I'll use a theological term, the context is a soteric context. The context is one of salvation. The context is one of redemption. This is how we get to know who God is. Not necessarily by, begin, by beginning with abstract concepts about godness, right. but by beginning in the realm of redemption and election and, and salvation. This is how God reveals his identity. I came across this quote yesterday in preparing for it this morning by Jewish theologian uh, Michael Vishagrod. Fascinating theologian, actually. But he, he says this, Although God is both the creator and the ruler of the universe. He reveals himself to humankind not as the conclusion of the cosmological or the teleological argument, but as the God of Abraham, who took the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, and whose people, the nations remain, that nation remains to the end of time. I mean, do you hear what he says here? And I think this is really important. It kind of goes back to some of my comments earlier about apologetics. I mean, when God chooses to reveal himself, even though he is the creator and the sustainer of the whole world, when he chooses to reveal himself here to Moses in the Exodus, he doesn't do so with the classic cosmological or teleological argument. You may remember some of these, right, from Philosophy 101. But what's the cosmological argument? It's the argument, kind of an Aristotelian argument, from first cause. In other words, if there was, if there is something, there had to be something prior that caused it. And if we go back through this sort of chain of cause and effect, there must be a first cause somewhere out there. And who is that first cause? That first cause is God. Right? I mean, that's the, that's the cosmological argument. And, and you do know, right, that David Hume came along in the Enlightenment period and, he sa- and said, I don't really find that persuasive. What if there's an infinite regression of cause and effect? Right? I mean, there's always a detractor to that kind of argument. The other one is the teleological argument. It's the argument from design. We look around the world. We see order. We see some sort of cosmos in the chaos. That must mean that there's a creator. And by the way, I believe that. I believe that. 
But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be persuasive to people philosophically. Just, just know that, okay? But I, I believe that that's, that's true. But that's not how God chooses to reveal himself to Moses at the beginning of his fashioning of this people to lead them into the land of Israel, to be his people as a light to the nations in the surrounding world. He, he doesn't choose to begin that way. How does he begin? He begins by revealing himself in the context of redemption, of salvation, of mercy, of grace. This is, this is who God is. I have come, verse 8, he says, I have come to deliver them. Who am I? Who are you, God? This is the great question of the book of Exodus. Who are you? I'll tell you who I am. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I'm a God who hears the oppression of my people and moves toward them because I remember my covenant with them and I cannot deny myself. I'm a God who saves. I'm a God who loves. And to use the language of your communion liturgy, having loved his own, he loves them all the way where? To the end. Right. All right, so that's uh, one. Let's go to the next text, if you don't mind. Exodus chapter 6. And before we get there, um, I, I, I think, if I can phrase it this way, when we begin talking about God and, and God's identity, who God is, historically, often in Christian theology, that answer was the, the, the answer to that question begins with raising questions about what, right? What, what's the divine essence? What does it mean for God to be God? So we begin to think about attributes and these kind of things: omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence. And by the way, I believe all of those too. Okay. But I do believe within the narrative of Exodus and really throughout the whole of the Bible that when God reveals Himself, He does so primarily with who questions. Identity questions, questions that sort of reveal themselves in a narrative plot, in a storied movement, so that we can look at our God and say, that's God, and he's acting completely in accord with his character, with who he is. That's how I can spot him out and differentiate our God from Marduk, or, and the list could go on, of, of competing gods or Baals in the surrounding world. This is our God. This is who he is. He reveals himself in his movement toward his people, in his redemptive movement toward his people. And I think this is what's going on in Exodus chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand he will let them go. By a mighty hand he will drive them out of the land. And then this is a verse that could cause one nightmares. Verse 2. God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Elyon, as God the Almighty. But by the name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. That's a problem. Because all you have to do is turn back to Genesis and read some of the narratives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And you begin to realize, guess what? They knew his name as Yahweh. Right. Or at least within those narratives, it says that. So what's going on here? Right? I think what's going on here, and I actually am 98% convinced of this reading of this text, that what's being claimed here in Exodus 6-2 is not that they did not know the phoneme or the name Yahweh. 
but they did not know the content and the significance of the name. Let's read the rest of the text and let's see if maybe the context helps unpack that. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they resided as aliens. I've also heard the groanings of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the Israelites, I am Yahweh. See, this is that revelation again of the name. I am Yahweh. And I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. This is a fascinating text, isn't it? Do you see what's going on here? He says, they didn't know me by my name, Yahweh. Again, not that they didn't know the appellation, Yahweh. But here, the fullness of of the content and the character of the divine name is being revealed. Go to them, Moses, and say, I am Yahweh. Well, what does that mean? What it means is, I've heard your cry. I'm coming to redeem you. I know your oppression. I'm going to, I'm going to take you out of, of your slavery. I'm going to take you out of your bondage. I'm going to be your Savior. The content of the divine name now here has its fullness, its richness, its depth within the being of God as Redeemer and Savior. He is Savior and He is Lord. We, we, don't, we don't get the one without the other. He is our Lord and, and He is our Savior and He's our Redeemer. I think this is extremely important. I think it's extremely important, again, because there are enough difficulties in the Old Testament that we have to wrestle with. But I want to begin and lead into that, those kinds of discussions the way in which I think the Old Testament itself pressures me to do that. And that is, when God wants to lead, put His best foot forward in revealing who He is, when He wants to put on His best show to let us know the core and the character of His own identity, He does so by pulling back the veil and saying, this is my name, I'm Yahweh. And how you will know that I am Yahweh is you will see me come down on you in acts of redemption and grace, relieving you from your bondage and bringing you into a land that flows with milk and honey. That's how you're going to know that I'm Yahweh. That's how you're going to know the character of my name. I'm your Savior. I'm your Redeemer. To put it with another image that's so common throughout the Old Testament, I'm your lover. I'm your, I'm your husband. <laughs> There's a God you can love, right? The God who comes to us as a lover, who refuses to allow our failure on our side of the covenant commands, who refuses to allow our failure to bring some sort of permanent fissure to that covenantal relationship. I'm going to love you, and I'm going to love you all the way to the end. It gets dicey through there. You just read First and Second Kings and Samuel. I mean, it gets dicey. It's a lover's quarrel in the Old Testament, but it's a lover's quarrel. Right? It's a quarrel between a loving husband and an unfaithful bride, but a husband who will not let his brides know be the final word. Well, I wanted to read this to you because the whole time we've been talking about the divine name, Yahweh, the significance of that name the redemptive context of that name. And now here a text that you, have, you know very well. I know most of you do. Philippians chapter 2. 
Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something uh, to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So do you hear the context? Right? Well, what's the context? It's a cross. It's redemption. It's salvation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And he has given him, you know this, right? The name that is above every name. So that, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that fascinating? He handed over to him the name. What name? Could be no other name than God's covenantal name, Yahweh. But here you have Jesus Christ embedded in the very identity of Yahweh himself. There, There can't be a more robust Trinitarian claim than you have here in Philippians 2. That Jesus Christ is fully God, yet and fully man. He's fully God. He's a part of the divine identity. He's been given the name that's unique to God Himself. We read this in Isaiah chapter 45, which is where this text is borrowing from, actually, in Philippians 2. But Yahweh does not share His glory with anybody else. That is His alone. He doesn't share that with anybody else. And at the name of Yahweh, it says in Isaiah 45, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. At the name of Yahweh. And here you see Paul doing this rich, Trinitarian, redemptive reading of Isaiah saying, and it's at the name of Jesus, who is the revelation of Yahweh, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I know you wrestle with it. I wrestle with it too. A God we can love, right? We bring so much baggage to that, I don't even think we know how to unpack it. How do we even know who we truly are? You know, I'm thinking about this this week. How do we even, do you even know who you really are? You don't. I don't even know who I am. What I do know is that in my union with Christ, which is Paul's favorite phrase, in my in Christness, my true humanity resides. My real self. That's why we look forward to the resurrection of the dead. I was talking about this with my wife yesterday. I'm thinking about this in relationship to funerals and death. You know, it's one of our great hopes in the resurrection of the dead. Right now, we get to see lightning flashes of our real selves show through. But in eternity, we'll see our real selves in their fullness with no hindrance of sin holding it back. Who we are fully in Christ. You know what that's like in your marital relationships or in the way in which you engage your kids or your parents or whatever. You know there's always something, there's something that you enjoy about that, but there's something that's not there either. I mean, there's got to be more to be grasped in these kind of human relationships. And you're right. There's got to be more. That's why, frankly, a lot of us have the kind of tensions that we do relationally. This is off script, sorry. But it's the kind, of, the kind of tension that we have relationally because we want our spouses to be Jesus for us, and they can't. Right? There's only one of them, right? and it ain't your husband, right? Um, but isn't it a glorious and hopeful thing to realize that in eternity we will know, we will have these relationships with one another and with Christ in the fullness of their, of their potentiality? Because our, our real humanity, the real mark, it's not the person you see right now. This is just kind of a shadow. The real mark is safely hid in Jesus. I'm there now. And that will be revealed in its fullness then. And that's, that's how I know who he is. 
because He's come down to us. He's brought us into Himself. And that's how He's, that's how he's revealed His name. Okay. Questions next week. All right. We'll do questions next week. All right. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you.